The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Welcome to the Biblical Foundations Bible Study class and our continuing series on the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. This week we're in our third lesson on the book of Timothy, and we're going to be looking at what I've called doing church God's way. If you were here over the last couple of weeks, you remember us talking about the issue of what is the church and why do churches die? And our concluding point was we'll never change the world by simply going to church. We'll only change the world by being the church. And then last week we looked at how to apply that lesson and a uh, broad uh, inspirational theme of how to change the world. And the idea was we can't uh, focus on uh, being another person's overseer. And I taught you a little bit of Greek, uh, but instead we're supposed to be like Christ and uh, be a friend uh, love those who are sinners, in other words, so that our life, our words, our actions uh, can be Christ in their life, draw them to the gospel as they see the gospel in our lives, and be the church to them. Uh, this week, we're looking at one of the most controversial passages in the modern church. And uh, we're continuing to study this idea of how do churches operate. We're looking at Paul's instructions to his uh, disciple, his uh, apprentice, you could say, Timothy, and giving him instruction in running the church at Ephesus about what it meant to run church, how to do church God's way, as I've titled this week's lesson. And you'll recall from our last two weeks as Paul left Rome after his imprisonment that we spent several months studying and looking at the books that he wrote while in Rome, uh, during his imprisonment, uh, he left with Titus and took Titus and Timothy to the island of Crete, where he left Titus. We spent a week looking at Paul's letter to Titus, who desperately wanted off that island. Uh, he then sailed with Timothy up to Ephesus, left Paul, Timothy in Ephesus, and then Paul went on by himself to Troas, over to Philippi, down to Corinth, and after spending several months uh, across those different cities, he ended up spending the winter at Nicopolis. And so from there, he wrote back to both Titus and Timothy, and we're spending a couple of weeks looking at Timothy because there's so many rich lessons in there. As we're talking this week about doing church God's way, we're going to break it down. We're going to look at his instructions to women, which has been very controversial in recent years. We're going to look at his instructions to overseers or elders and talk about what that's meant throughout the centuries and what it means today within our church in particular. We're going to look at the concept of deacons real briefly, and then we're going to end with the subject of us. What does it mean for us to do church God's way? Now, I got to say at the outset, the lens with which we look at this is entirely clouded by our own personal church experience in our youth and in our adult years, and it's entirely clouded by our 20th and 21st century culture and experiences. It is not too much of a leap of logic to realize that Paul and those in the first century church would simply not recognize how we do church today. 
our idea of musical instruments would be incomprehensible. Most of the lyrics would be incomprehensible. The way we do church service would generally be incomprehensible. There would be familiar anchors. We're obviously teaching from the same Bible, from the same scripture, uh, that they would have been familiar with the truths from or would have had a copy of the Gospels uh, by this point. But much of the way we do church would have been incomprehensible. The idea of Sunday school or life Bible study, as we call it, our church, would be completely incomprehensible to them. So as we look at these lessons, it's important to do so in the context of the first century. First century women, first century elders and overseers, first century deacons, first century uh, attenders or congregants we're going to look at. Uh, and so it's important we realize not only the context in which Paul is writing, but as we apply it today, realize that there's truths that are applicable to us uh, that transcend the millennium and transcend the generations, and we'll apply those as we get to it. But let's start with these controversial passages. What I've got to do with the idea of before I jump into Paul's teaching on women, you got to put this into context. You got to understand in the context of, of uh, women in Old Testament views, women in New Testament perspective, and then culturally what Paul was dealing with. Because you've got to be able to understand how revolutionary and pro women Paul was. If you talk to anybody today about the Apostle Paul, particularly non believers, uh, they will come into the conversation with the idea that the Apostle Paul. Paul is anti-women, he's a misogynist, uh, he's sexist, uh, and quite a few people in Christianity, particularly on the liberal side of Christianity, have the same view. And for many of them, they've just simply cut Paul's uh, portions of Paul's letters out of Scripture and say, that's not applicable to us, we're not going to follow that. And if you do a correct biblical interpretation, I can show you why those interpretations are either ill-founded or just flat-out wrong. To do that, though, I got to give you a little background. Let's talk about some background. Women's uh, rights, so to speak, or women's issues in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we start with the reality in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that the Mosaic Law was given to all of Israel, to men and women, gave them rights, gave them liberties, gave them responsibilities, gave them obligations uh, in many respects equally, in some respects different, respecting their different gender roles. Men and women were both charged to teach God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 30, and some others as well. Women had inheritance rights. In that part of the Middle Eastern world, women did not have inheritance rights, but the Bible gave Jewish women inheritance rights, and it was a right they continued throughout all of biblical history. Women participated in all of the Jewish feasts. Sometimes they had uh, active roles. Occasionally they would have certain leadership roles for certain parts of it, but women participated fully in all the Jewish feasts. Women were also involved in spiritual service. Now, it didn't mean that women were acting as priests or ever became a high priest. It didn't mean women were uh, doing all functions, but they were involved in spiritual service, particularly at times when Israel fell into disobedience. We see images like Deborah in the book of Judges. We see women uh, taking leadership roles during the time of the monarchy and the kings. We see times when Israel fell into idolatry and was taken into captivity, women stepping up into certain leadership roles. And we could do months and months of study on the great women of the Old Testament 
that were involved in various aspects of spiritual service. In the New Testament, that continued and deepened in many respects. There was a spiritual equality between men and women uh, in the teachings of Christ, in the teachings of Paul and Peter and James. There was a spiritual quality that said they are, we are all saved the same. We are all the same in front of Christ. Paul himself said there is no difference spiritually in terms of our salvation between men and women, but he clearly recognized biological differences, role differences, and other things between the sexes. It's significant in the life of Christ what he did with women. The first person Jesus revealed his Messiahship to was a woman. And likewise, the first person to see the resurrected Jesus at the tomb was a woman. That's significant because in terms of legal witnesses, a witness to the truth of something in Roman law at the time, as a carryover to Greek law, a woman was not allowed to be a witness in a court of law. So when Jesus made himself first known as the Messiah and first known as the resurrected Savior to a woman, realizing she was going to have the equivalent of the testimony in a court of law to a whole bunch of people that doubted it's significant that he went to a woman that in their culture didn't have the authority to be a witness. Christ was saying to them, she can be a witness to me and she can be a witness to the world. Jesus also healed multiple women, giving a physical manifestation, physical proof that spiritually they were all the same in front of God as men. It's also significant that in the New Testament that unlike rabbis in their culture that would not teach women, Jesus did teach women. Women also uh, were instructed by the Apostle Paul to lead in prayer services in the early church. Early in Acts, we see women praying publicly. Philip's daughters, Philip the Apostle, uh, his daughters, two daughters, publicly prophesied the book of Acts tell us. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, Anna, uh, and six other women publicly shared the truth of Jesus as shared to them by angels or as shared to them by their own observations in dealing uh, with Jesus as a human. And so it's significant that throughout the New Testament, women also play, like in the Old Testament, a very prominent role. There's differences in roles. There's differences among different men in certain types of roles. And there's also differences in certain roles between the genders as recognized in the Old and the New Testament. With that background, it is critical to understand at the time of the Apostle Paul in the first century, in culture, in social and in politics, women were not even second-class citizens. They were not citizens. They might be Jew by birth, but they were not culturally, socially, or politically in a position to do anything with that. In Roman culture, in many respects, it was even worse. They were not considered Roman citizens with any type of the rights that men had, and I'm going to apply that to you and show you why that was significant. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 says, A woman should learn in silence with full submission. Now, a lot of women with a 21st century perspective will look at that and just immediately wanting to start throwing rocks at Paul or the teacher that's talking about that, like me. Don't throw your rocks at your screen. Uh, but it's important to realize that his communication is in the affirmative, not the negative. The structure of the Greek, the way he orders the words, it's a positive instruction, not a negative command. The positive instruction should learn 
was answering what he inevitably would have heard from Timothy was a charge primarily from his Jewish uh, leader friends or the Jewish mem- former Jewish members of the church, the Christian church, but also from the Roman uh, citizens that did not teach their women. Paul is saying categorically women should learn. And then he comments in silence with full submission. I'll address that issue in a few minutes on the concept of teaching. Now, what you've got to know in this context is in the first century, when Paul is writing this, Jewish women could not learn Bible. If you came from a Jewish background, the way you learned was indirectly. I'm going to show you some pictures of some pretty cool synagogues. This is the synagogue at Capernaum, which uh, the ruins still exist today. Capernaum is the city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee that was Jesus' hometown during his adult ministry. And in the picture on the left, you can see what would be the uh, synagogue proper where the men would have uh, gathered for their worship services. The space to the right was like an atrium. It had a partial covered roof, and that's where the women had to stand with open doors and listen through an open door to whatever was being said or whatever was being done in the synagogue. So if they could pick up anything, if they could hear, it had to be learned indirectly. That's an artist's uh, description or a drawing of what it would have looked like. You can see the bits part on the left that I just described to you in Capernaum where the men would have gone for worship, the women would have been separate in the atrium, and they would have had to sit quietly and listen through an open door if they could hear at all. This is in Antioch, further on up the road in Syria, that was Paul's hometown during his uh, adult ministry, uh, the years of his ministry after his experience on the Damascus Road. You can see the same type of design as in Capernaum. The worship center proper would have been on the left. That's where the men would have sat uh, on stone benches. And the place to the right is where the women would have sat uh, or stood and could only listen to what was going on inside the synagogue service uh, in worship through an open door. Uh, This is a drawing of what it would have looked like. The men would have gone in the main doors. The women would have gone off to the building or the atrium to the right and just could have listened through an open door. This is the archaeological ruins of the synagogue in Ephesus. So this is where uh, adjacent to where Timothy would have been preaching. The people in Timothy's church, in part, would have come from this synagogue. This is a fascinating archaeological site because when they first discovered it, they couldn't find the side room where the women typically in the Middle East would have gone in their synagogues in order to listen to the worship service. And so for years after finding this archaeological site, Scholars couldn't understand where the women in in Ephesus had to stand, and they thought for years they would just stand outside and listen through the windows. Until about 15 years ago, they found some Roman uh, records that described the synagogue in Ephesus and described so that they could draw a picture of exactly what it looked like. They discovered in the Roman records that they found a number of years ago that the women in Ephesus had to listen on the second floor. So this drawing shows the church at Ephesus based on the the archaeological site I just showed you. And you can see there on the left-hand side and up, the women would have had to climb the stairs and then through open windows would have had to listen down below to the worship service going on. 
The point was, if you had a Jewish perspective, women were not allowed to attend worship. Women were not allowed to listen and be in worship. And so for the Jewish audience, when Paul says the women shall learn, they should learn, he's giving instruction that was totally contrary to their culture and what the Jewish people would have been encouraging Timothy as the pastor to do, which is kick out the women. And Paul's saying to Timothy, do not kick out the women. Let them be in worship. Let them learn. Now, for the Roman citizens, it was even worse because unlike the Jewish women, in Roman culture, the women were property. They could be sold. They could be handled like property. If the husband didn't like them, they could brand them with a hot branding iron. They could do anything to a woman that they did to a piece of cattle or a piece of chattel that they owned, like a, a book or something like that. They were not allowed to go to school like the boys and the men were. They were not taught to read. They were not taught to write. There may have been an occasional uh, small circumstance like in uh, the Roman court of Caesar. Caesar inevitably would have had someone teach his daughters. But in the Roman world, education was not allowed for women. And everything they did had to be separate. In the Roman home, the woman had her own bedroom and no one could enter except her husband. They ate separately. The men and the boys would eat all by themselves. The women would serve them, and then the women would eat separately. In public, a woman could not be with anyone other than her husband or another group of women. They could not be alone in public. At the theater, at the Colosseum, anywhere they went, they could not go as a woman. Men were the only ones allowed in the amphitheater, in the Colosseum, in the circus, in the different places where they would go to watch the entertainment forums of the day. So women in Roman culture would not be educated, could not go to a worship service like that with the one exception of the temple prostitutes at the Temple of Artemis, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, women had no ability in Roman culture to go to a place of worship unless they were acting as a temple prostitute. So for Roman women, the idea of going to church and learning was completely revolutionary. So when Paul says women should learn, he was pro-women, just like the Bible is pro-woman, Old and New Testament. He was in favor of women learning. He was in favor of recognizing the equality of women in the sight of God. And it's, it's the exact opposite of what 20th and 21st century uh, non-Christians or liberal Christians would have to say about the Bible or the Apostle Paul. It is incredibly pro-woman, saying in a culture that devalued women tremendously, they should learn. Now, at this point, the ultra-feminist would say, well, we're insulted by the fact that he said that we just had to listen and learn. We had to be quiet. Paul answers that issue when he talks about the issue of teaching. And he says they should learn, very pro-woman position, but he says in verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. Now, at this point, a woman who does not understand Bible, based on the English, is really ready to throw rocks. Don't throw rocks at Paul. Don't throw rocks at me. Don't throw rocks at your computer screen if you're watching, because a reading of that in English gives you the wrong interpretation. Now, I've said many, many times, you don't have to understand Greek to understand your Bible, but occasionally there's some Greek words that really make the text come alive and understandable. This is critical to understand 
understand the Greek. And it's not just understanding a Greek word. It's even more particular than that. It's understanding a Greek tense. And I got to admit, I'm not a Greek professor. I don't have a degree in Greek. I am very uh, much a basic elementary learner, but I read from Greek scholars. I've studied Greek a lot, and this is so critical, I'm not even going to attempt to explain it. I'm going to allow the Greek scholars to explain it for you and show you in a direct quote exactly how this should be interpreted properly. If we were going to look at our Greek word, it would say, I do not allow a woman to diadoskine. Uh, we're going to study what that means. or to have authority over a man. Diadoskine is a present infinitive that actually means to be a teacher versus the aorist tense or the aorist infinitive that means simply to teach in all circumstances. You can see there is a difference. Now, in a simple English interpretation, you would say, well, to teach or to be a teacher is just a matter of semantics. That may be true in English. It is not true in Greek. Now, unless you're an English major in college, you probably in high school didn't have much of a lecture on present infinitives versus aorist infinitives. Uh, and if you did by chance in high school or college, I'm willing to bet a lot of money you don't remember what you learned. So rather than try to teach it to you and run the risk of saying it wrong or explain it incorrectly or somehow being a tiny bit off, I'm going to let some of the foremost Greek scholars of the last century explain it to us. Up on your screen in the left-hand margin is a picture of the Greek grammar book that has guided seminary students for almost a century, for almost 100 years. H.E. Uh, Dana and Julius Manti were two of the greatest Bible teachers the 20th century had ever heard of. Uh, Dana, Professor Dana was the professor of New Testament studies at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. Manti was the professor of New Testament studies at the North Baptist Seminary, the Northern Baptist Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. They wrote this book in 1923, and it was so good, literally for 100 years, it is still a reference source for anyone studying Greek. I've got it in my library. I love it. I use it almost on a weekly basis in teaching you guys, and rather than trying to just summarize what these guys have said, I've directly quoted it. Now, i got to apologize in advance. They use as an illustration a number of Greek words, and my pronunciation of Greek has a tendency to slip a little bit. I'll do my best, but he uses a number of different Greek words here, and I promise I'm likely to slip a little bit. Dana and Manti in their manual grammar of the Greek New Testament on page 199 explain, the aorist infinitive denotes that which is eventual or particular while the present infinitive indicates a condition or a process. Now he's going to give some examples. Thus, pestui, the aorist, is to exercise faith on a given occasion, while pestuin, the present infinitive, is to be a believer. So the aorist uses the word that just means faith or to believe. The present tense is a state of being something, being a believer. He then continues, Doluesi, the aorist, is to render a service, while deloin, the present tense, is to be a slave. Harmartiai, the aorist, is to commit a sin, 
hamartinein is to be a sinner. Didaize, uh, the aorist, is to teach, while didaskin is to be a teacher. That's the quotation or the language, the word quote, that comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So he's drawing a distinction between the act of always being something or always doing something and a unique position, the position of being a teacher. So the particular Greek word here in the present infinitive means that Paul is talking about something that is positional. These professors of seminary continue to explain. Paul therefore says, I do not permit a woman to be a teacher. The context here has to do with church order and the positions of church leadership in worship and in church work. The kind of teacher Paul has in mind is spoken of in Acts 13, 1, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, 29, and Ephesians chapter 4, 11, which is in the context of preaching. God-called, God-equipped teacher leaders recognized by the church as those having leadership authority in matters of doctrine and interpretation. If you understand that, then you don't need to throw rocks at Paul or me or the computer screen or anybody else talking about this because that indicates this is talking about a very, very specific situation. Now, let me give you a history of the interpretation of these two verses, particularly 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, uh, in the, court, the history of Christianity. Before the 19th century, it was literally interpreted in accordance with sexist cultural views and women were not allowed to do anything at church. There is no history of women teaching or preaching in the Catholic church or major denominations up until the end of the 19th century. Their culture that kept women uh, not voting, not politically active, not socially active in a same place religiously, which was just attending and listening and never teaching and never doing anything in church leadership. At the end of the 19th century, throughout the 20th century, and now into the 21st century, we've got a spectrum of perspectives. The liberal perspective is basically to say Paul is a sexist pig and we're going to take an exacto knife and cut those portions out of our Bible and completely ignore them. So in major denominations, you have women pastors. You have women taking significant roles of leadership in church administration, and their view is a man can do the same thing, a woman can do the same thing a man can do. Uh, there is no distinction whatsoever. The conservative view would say, we're going to take a literal interpretation of what Paul says in 1 Timothy. And while women are allowed to teach, women are not allowed to be a pastor because that's the context that Paul was talking about when he said they can't lead or to be a teacher in a church and have church authority over a man. The ultra-conservative view is the view that most uh, mimics, I should say, uh, the church prior to the 19th century. Today, that would be your uh, traditional Bible churches or some very fundamentalist churches that would have the same role and say women can have no role whatsoever in the church other than maybe teaching very young children in a nursery or teaching a woman's only adult Bible study. That's the only role they would give them. So, 
how do we interpret this? What do we look at? Let me teach you some principles of hermeneutics. That's a really fancy seminary term that are the guidelines for how we interpret scripture. I've taught these to you before. I'm covering them again just to make sure everybody's up to speed with us. We always look at other scripture to help us understand a confusing point of scripture. We always look at the context that it's taught in, both the context of the book, the context of a section of a book, the cultural context in which it was written. We look at the intent of the writer to the extent he says anything about his intent in writing a book of the Bible or the intent of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to look at the clarity of an interpretation rather than something that's a little bit more obscure. So how do I apply that? I look at scripture and I say, what does scripture say about women teaching at all? Now, I've already told you about the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 30, numerous other chapters say women are to teach. Sometimes they're children, sometimes others, but the Old Testament, I already explained to you, has the context of women teaching the law of God. In the New Testament, Timothy himself, scripture tells us, was taught by both his mother and his grandmother. We're going to see that particularly in our next study of 2 Timothy. In the book of Acts, in chapter 18 particularly, Priscilla and her husband Aquila both taught the apostle Apollos uh, the way of God more accurately. A specific quote from Acts chapter 18. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission is given to all believers, men and women alike, telling us all that we have the charge to make disciples, which includes teaching them. If women can't teach, you got a disconnect and an inconsistency with the Great Commission. Colossians chapter 3, Paul told the entire church to be teaching and admonishing one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul allowed women to pray and prophesy in public worship. How about the cultural context? That was our second point of hermeneutics as we try to interpret scripture. Remember the two extremes we're dealing with, and I referred to both of these earlier. In the cultural context, you had two extremes. You had what the left side of the screen shows as the old Jewish synagogue idea, which was women could only learn indirectly. Women could never teach anything in any capacity. But on the right side of the screen, I've got a picture of the temple there in Ephesus where, where Timothy was the pastor. And there at the, tem at the uh, temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, their worship, as I explained earlier, was done entirely by women. They had a woman in charge of it. They had women prostitutes that led their so-called worship. They had women that ran everything, that spoke, that took the money, that led it, that explained what was going on, that did all the organizational. It was 100% run by women. So if any of those women were converted to Christianity and came into church, their only religious experience was them running it. And so Paul has got the cultural context to deal with teaching, and he explains in terms of the leadership of the church at Ephesus that God's ordained role was not to have a pastor who is a woman, but instead to have a pastor who is a man. And you can argue with that, but rather than throw rocks at Paul or some other teacher or myself or your computer screen, my point is your gripe there is with God himself. At that point, if you disagree with that teaching point on a man as a pastor, then you've got a problem with your entire Bible. But if you hang with me a little bit, I think you'll understand why this is in our Bible. 
in the context, Paul is talking about principles of church leadership. He's not talking about a teaching or church methodology from the 21st century, because I explained to start with, that would be completely foreign to them. He's not talking about adult Bible study. He's not talking about Sunday school. He's not talking about midweek Bible study in your home or in the church or anything else. He's talking about leadership positions in the church. And just like he said within the family, I'm going to require the man to be the spiritual leader. Doesn't mean he's a dictator. Doesn't mean he gets to dictate everything that's going on or his way or the highway. In church, he's saying the spiritual leader once again, not a dictator, but a spiritual leader is going to be a man. Once again, if you're griped with that, it's not with the Apostle Paul or anybody else teaching it like me. It's with God himself. But as a principle of church leadership, it means you cannot categorically across the board say women cannot teach anytime, anywhere. The other thing that I think is significant is God's spiritual gifts. Uh, I don't need to teach you guys about women who have the spiritual gift of teaching. On the left-hand side of the screen is a woman named Lottie Moon. If you're a Baptist and have participated in certain uh, foreign missions offerings, you've heard of her because the mission offering is today named after her. Lottie Moon for 40 years was a missionary teacher in China. And it's estimated that prior to the communist takeover of China, she individually, through her Bible teaching, led more than 100,000 Chinese to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. She was a gifted Bible teacher. The woman right below her, Amy Carmichael, for 55 years was a missionary teacher and writer in India. She wrote 16 books. She led tens of thousands of people to the Lord and was an incredibly gifted teacher. The woman uh, also on kind of the middle left side of the screen is Kay Arthur, the starter, the founder of Precept Bible Studies, who have had hundreds of thousands of Christians through her Precept Bible Study program, an incredibly gifted teacher of God's Word. Next to her, we've got Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband, Jim Elliot, in their 20s, was a missionary down in South America, uh, was murdered by natives, and for the remaining 50 years of her life, Elizabeth Elliot was a Bible study teacher that at the time I was in college and law school taught on more than 600 Christian radio stations through the Back to the Bible ministry. And other than Warren Wiersbe was their most popular teacher in the 20th century. And then the lady on the right side of the screen, most of us don't need an introduction to because for years she was a member of our church, Beth Moore. In fact, where we have Bible study on Sundays when we're inside the building, uh, our classroom was a part of her classroom where she had 800 people uh, every Sunday attend Bible study. Uh, I've got every book she's ever written. I've listened to hundreds of her sermons. Uh, and most of the women on the screen can out teach about 90 or 95 percent of the men who have ever taught God's word. So you can't look at God's giftedness and say women categorically cannot teach because these women have shown not only can and should they teach, but the result of their teaching is people coming to faith in Jesus Christ by the hundreds of thousands 
and Christians deepening their understanding of and walk with God's word. So that means we've got to interpret 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, exactly the way it was written, which is that Paul was instructing Timothy that in God's ordained leadership of spiritual leadership, he is calling for men to spiritually lead in the church. And all of these women in their teaching ministry would never dispute that. The fact they taught Bible to men and women alike, the fact they led different people to Christ, the fact they deepened the walk of many people, they would never, because I've heard all of them teach, uh, either in person or in the tapes they left behind or the recordings they left behind, uh, none of them would say that they needed to be the pastor of a church or biblically they should be a pastor of a church. They understood biblical language Jesus. They understood the Greek text. They knew exactly what Paul was teaching and had no problem with it. We shouldn't either. Now, with that background of women, he then transitions to elders and overseers. Some of your Bibles translate this overseer. Some of them translated elders. It says in verse chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an able teacher, not addicted to wine, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. Now, if I was teaching a seminary class to a bunch of pastors-to-be, I'd spend a lot of time on each word, each passage, what it meant, the checklist to be a pastor. If I was leading a pastoral search committee, we would read this, we would study this, we would pray over it. For our class, I simply want to introduce the concept. Uh, teaching from the Holman translation, it uses the word overseer. The New American Standard does the same thing. Some translations like the NIV or some others use the term elder. So we've got to come to terms with what this means. Let me give you a little history of church leadership because this kind of helps explain why this is significant. Because for centuries, the church did not follow the model that Paul gives us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Initially, we had churches like the church at Ephesus that had a elder, had a pastor, we would call it today, that was leading it. We've got to understand is as the first century moved into the second and then moved into the third centuries, some uh, elders, some overseers, some pastors became more prominent than others. And by the third and fourth century, you had four bishops by their title, uh, that were leaders of all of the Christian churches within their sphere of influence. The Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, uh, the Bishop over Jerusalem, although after Jerusalem was destroyed, he didn't center in Jerusalem. Uh, the Bishop of Antioch, which was Paul's hometown, was pretty significant. And then the Bishop of Rome. If you fast forward to the fifth century, the end of the 400 ADs, the Bishop of Rome basically tried to convince everything else that he was more significant than everybody else because he made an argument that the apostle Peter started as the first pastor in Rome and because he could trace his pastoral leadership back to Peter. And since Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to give you the key, the keys, he traced the idea of leadership back to Peter and came up with the idea of him being the Pope. So the second type of leadership we had after ecclesiastical leadership was papal leadership. The first guy that articulated the fact he was in charge of the entire Christian church was Pope Leo I. 
who people in the Catholic Church after him called Leo the Great. Uh, forgive me for not having a close parenthesis there. Uh, if you go to uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, uh, if you go up to the main center part there and then turn right, just off to the right, is the altar to uh, Leo uh, that commemorates the fact the Catholic Church Day because he's the guy that first said the Bishop of Rome is the one that's in charge of all the churches or ought to be in charge of all the churches, uh, and they honor him with this little uh, altar that's off to the right side there at St. Peter's. Uh, then after about 600 years, the eastern side of Christianity uh, basically said, we don't want to follow the Pope. We want to do things a little bit differently. And they continued a form of what I would call papal leadership. It just didn't follow the Pope. They had a central leader. They just called him the patriarch. Uh, and he was in charge of the Eastern Orthodox Church, but he had the same type of papal authority that the Pope had in Rome. That continues to today. And the idea of papal leadership continued for many, many years. Following the Protestant Reformation, we then got a different style of church leadership that I call denominational leadership. And the denominational leadership was very similar to papal leadership in that there was one guy in charge of the denomination. The Pope was in charge of the Roman Catholics. They had one guy in charge of the Unitarians, one guy in charge of the uh, Methodists, one guy in charge of the Episcopals, one guy in charge of the Presbyterians, one guy in charge of all the different denominations. The Baptists were a little bit different, as I'll explain in a few minutes, but denominational leadership basically still had the same type of corporate pyramid with one guy on top deciding who was going to pastor individual churches, who was going to lead music at individual churches, what individual churches were going to believe, what the denominational uh, position of theology was going to be. And that lasted up until the founding of the Americas, the founding of the United States. That type of leadership was very democratic. The founding of America picked up on this idea of the democratic ideals of self-rule and congregational leadership basically says the pastor's not in charge, the congregation is in charge. So the congregation votes on everything. They vote on who the pastor is, they vote on what their theology is, they vote on how they do church, they vote on everything. And so it's kind of a democratic ideal that uh, rules from the ground up and doesn't have any type of uh, pastoral type leadership. Then in the early 20th century, we had a shift to the far end of the spectrum with elder-led churches. And the group of, of men that were elders or overseers were the ones that made all the decisions. They hired the pastor. They decided denomination or, uh, theological issues. They decided uh, all the different things the church was going to do, from who can be a member to who could be kicked out to how do you do church discipline. And the elders uh, ruled. Today, you find that in Bible churches. Uh, just down the road from our church is uh, Bethel. Uh, and Bethel uh, operates as an elder-led church where a group of men make all the significant decisions of the church, and there's a number of those around, but typically they're smaller Bible churches. Within the Southern Baptist Convention and within our church, which is a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, our model of uh, church leadership is as close as almost anything else that exists today uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3 because the role of elder and overseer is the role of pastor. Uh, 
uh, that's the role of a church. And so uh, our churches call individual pastor. There's no uh, someone in charge of the Southern Baptist Convention that appoints pastors to us uh, or that moves pastors around or decides issues of theology. Uh, each individual church makes their own decisions uh, and calls a man that meets the criteria of 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, to lead them as the shepherd leads the flock. So that's why Pastor Greg uh, doesn't report to a board of elders because he is the elder. He is the overseer. Uh, and that's why our church, in terms of a leadership structure, has a pastor, has a staff, has deacons, which we'll talk about next. Uh, deacons, uh, our transition um, as the next uh, way of God's way of doing church. And we see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where it says, Deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. The problem we've seen in the 20th century is deacons thought they were elders. They thought they were overseers. And if you ask my dad, his greatest frustrations of being a pastor was in churches where deacons thought they were the elders and thought they got to essentially be the board of directors over the pastor. If a deacon body thinks they're the board of directors or the board of trustees over the church, you've got a messed up congregation because the definition of deacon is diakonos, which means a servant. It's the opposite of a board of directors and the opposite of board of trustees. And at our church, deacons are servants. They help in ministry. They help serve meals. Uh, they go to houses and help serve the widows. Uh, they do all kinds of different acts of service. Uh, they've asked me multiple times to be a deacon, and I've turned them down each time just simply because uh, teaching you guys uh, on a weekly basis without a, a solid weekly, monthly backup uh, in my law practice and my family commitments, I just don't have enough hours in the day to do it. Uh, but for those men that do it, it's a calling, but it's a servant calling. It's not a board of trustees. It's not a leadership position. It's a servant position. We end with how 1 Timothy chapter 3 ends with our responsibility, what we do to do church God's way. He says in uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, he says, I've written to you so you'll know how people ought to act, that's us, in God's household, that's his church, which is the church of the living God. I will say on this point that so many of the churches that are dying and losing membership and may not survive the 21st century are churches that do not worship the living God. They don't have a God that they preach in terms of helping families, that preach in terms of stopping divorce, that preach in terms of stopping or minimizing affairs, that preach in terms of helping people succeed as Christian business leaders and Christian employees. The church of the living God is the same way you'd think of a living spouse or a living child or a living relationship with anybody, it's active, it's communicational, it's involved in your life. And the churches that are vibrant and alive like ours teach and preach and live as a church of the living God that cares about us in the different aspects of life. The second thing he talks about is the pillar and foundation of truth. That means to figure out human history, to figure out psychology, to figure out ethics. You don't go to academia. You don't go to pop science. You don't go to Hollywood. 
you go to the word of God, the pillar and foundation of truth, and we have to be people of the truth. If I said before, one of the greatest things that scares me to death in our culture is the fact that truth has been minimized in our culture societally and societally and politically. And the moment we stop being people of truth, the time we become a people that don't care about the truth in culture, in business, in politics, it delegitimizes our faith. We've got to be the pillar and foundation of the truth, not only in what we believe, but in what we speak and what we do. And the final point is, where he says in verse 16, most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Who's that? It's Jesus Christ. It's the essence of our church. It's the essence of what I do as a Bible study teacher. It's the essence of who I am as a person, as a lawyer, as a father, as a husband. It means Jesus Christ what he stood for, what he taught, how he lived, has got to be how we live. If that's the corner of your church, cornerstone of your church, it's a church that alive, that's alive. If it's the cornerstone of your life, you become a person that is alive spiritually. And it's the essence of what we're supposed to embody as a church as we deal with the lost, as we deal with those who have lifestyles we don't agree with, and with those Christians that we're trying to nurture and love me better. So in the last couple of minutes, what's our application? Two very, very simple points. The first one is church is not about you. So many of us go to church and our checklist is what it means to us. Did we like the music or did we not like the music? Did the pastor make us laugh or did he not make us laugh? Did the pastor make us cry or not make us cry? Did Chris, as our teacher, keep us entertained? It's all about us. Church, as you've seen in the model of 1 Timothy chapters 1, 2, and 3, is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about us as individuals. It's about him. We become a serving church for the lost. We become a serving church for our fellow believers. When it's not about you, when it's not about me, when it's not about us, it can be about him. And if we keep our focus on God, if we keep our focus on what his word means, if we keep our focus on what his son did for us, what he taught us, how he lived, and how we can mimic those things, how he died, how his resurrection secures our future, then we become the men and the women that God intended us to be, using our spiritual gifts, whatever they are, However, he calls us to make a difference with those that don't know Christ, that don't know what it means to have a Bible, that don't know what it means to be a part of the family of God and his church. And when it's not about us as individuals, but it's all about him, then it becomes possible. We've got three more chapters in Timothy. I'm not sure whether I'm going to do that in one or two lessons, most likely two lessons. I'll figure that out probably in the next day or two. Uh, but we're going to keep our study going on Timothy. We're not under any kind of time pressure to finish, but it's a great study, and I hope you're enjoying it. We're going to finish 1 Timothy, and we're going to continue with the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul, and I hope you'll join me again. Uh, let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. We pray that you would use this to challenge us, not to make church about us, not to make Bible study about us, but to make it about you and make everything we do as husbands, wives, parents, grandparents, 
employers, employees, everything we do as neighbors and friends to those in the world, that it be a focus about you. Thank you for the strength and the encouragement to do it. Thank you for the opportunity to love you and to worship you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved. Thank you.